The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, good morning, church. It's a great privilege to, uh, to be here and to talk with you about uh, something that is very difficult, as Pastor Scott said, and that is the topic of church discipline. Uh, so as we gather this morning, I do want to, to kind of couch this discussion in an understanding of who our God is. We need to be reminded this morning that our God is a God who has purchased the way for us to come to him. The same God who the scriptures say dwells in inapproachable light. He should not be approached. He has, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, made himself approachable. That if we would come to him in faith and in faith alone, declaring to him that he is the Lord of the universe and repenting of our sins, then he says, come. Come, take of my riches. Enjoy my grace. And dwell with me forevermore. That is the God that we serve. The God who makes himself available. There is another reality that we are discussing this morning uh, that has to do with church discipline. I have entitled this sermon, What is Love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. And we have to answer this question, right? We have to answer this question, what is love? And how is love expressed in the context of the local church? That's what we've been talking about for the past five and now six weeks in this series, The Church Gathered for Glory. How does the church love one another? Because our culture, we have to answer this question because our culture has the perception that love is just whatever does not hurt me. Love is you looking at me and accepting me and and never telling me that anything that I do is wrong. You just need to look at me and take me for who I am and, and just kind of, you know, accept me and never say, never make any value statements about the way I act or the way that I live my life. Now, we have to be careful here because, of course, our God accepts us just as we are. But the reality is that in Christ, when a person has received Christ, they begin to live a changed life. So Christ will accept you as you are, of course. Of course, that's one of the foundational tenets of our faith. But he does not leave us that way. He does not leave us, praise God, in the condition in which he found us. Recently, uh, news outlets, bloggers, sports pundits have been you know, going back and forth debating the events that led to the NFL suspending uh, Tom Brady for four games. And, and the pundits, of course, have been going back and forth because of the, uh, what many consider to be strange or ironic that they would suspend Tom Brady for four games, but then Ray Rice, who was caught on camera, you know, beating up his then fiance in an elevator and, and leaving her unconscious, he only got a two-game suspension. And the purpose for me, for me bringing this illustration to you is not for me to, you know, to, to, to just make some kind of value statement about what the NFL has done. But I think I understand 
I think I understand why the NFL made this decision to do a four-game suspension for Tom Brady and a two-game suspension for Ray Rice. And first of all, it has to do with the fact that the NFL is not a law enforcement agency. So, you know, if something happens, if, if Ray Rice is caught in domestic violence, he probably needs to be put in jail. And then the suspension thing will just kind of take care of itself. But what has happened with Tom Brady, if, you know, what has allegedly happened with Tom Brady... That actually deals with, it concerns the integrity of the game itself. It concerns the integrity, the trustworthiness of the NFL. Can we trust that when we turn on the TV and watch the Super Bowl or watch a, you know, a conference tournament or, or watch the playoffs, can we be sure that the game is being fairly executed it has to do with the name of the NFL. And while I would agree that, you know, having players in the NFL who, who are engaged in domestic violence, that doesn't reflect well on the game, on the name of the NFL. But what, what is happening with Tom Brady concerns the purview that is, that is specific to the NFL. The NFL is concerned with making sure that their games are played right. And that reflects on their name. In a similar way, God has given us a charge in the church. That if the church is what we have said it is over the past five weeks. That if the church is to be a picture of God and a picture of his gospel. Then what we do inside here. What we do with our lives, how our church stays pure, it concerns the very name of God. It concerns his very gospel. So how we deal with sin, how we deal with uh, one another, the reality that we are imperfect, how we deal with that has to do with the integrity of how the world sees God and views his gospel. That is why church discipline is so important. So before I get any further, let me give you just a couple of definitions here before we begin in earnest and look to our, our passage of what church discipline is. I would say that church discipline uh, involves primarily how we open ourselves up to hard conversations about our own sin. I'm getting ready to go through a plan that, that Jesus gives for how the church is to go through kind of these formal steps of dealing with sin. And we, we must understand that, that this should not come as any kind of shock to us because we sing uh, on a week-by-week -week basis songs like, no list of sins I have not done. We believe genuinely and practically that we are practical sinners. We don't just have sin, we do sins on a daily basis. And we sing these songs because we believe these things about us. No list of sins I have not done. So it should not come to us as any surprise that, we, that, that Jesus would talk to us and would give us a word revealed in his Bible about how we should deal with one another's sins. And so we look to that now in the scriptures. I would suggest that first, if we are able to learn how to, to have good gospel conversations with one another, hey, brother, you know, I may be wrong, but, but I see this in your life, and, and uh, you know, perhaps 
maybe there's something that, that we should talk about here. You know, I, I don't know. Um, you know, tell me, explain this to me. I've noticed that, that this kind of seems to be a pattern in your life. If we learn how to have those conversations, then the reality is we many times will not need to go through the very formal and very uncomfortable steps that are described later. So church discipline is first how we open ourselves up to hard conversations with other believers about the realities of our own heart. It's how the church makes sure that it is showing the world an accurate accurate picture of God. If the church is to be a picture of God and the gospel, then if there is impurity in the church, the world will have no choice but to conclude that God himself is not good. So we understand these things are, are weighty. These things are important. It's how the church deals with sin inside of its membership. Because we believe that you can't know Christ without being changed, then we cannot allow one another to live in an unchanged way and then believe that it's okay. That's what this is about. We can't expect people on the outside to know of God's holiness if we ourselves are failing to demonstrate personal holiness inside our body here. So at the end of the day, this discussion about your sin and my sin and and how we sin and how we deal with it and handle conflict, it's really not about us. So don't get offended. It's about the image of God. And that should cause us to want to have this discussion and to want to do what we must to conform our church to the biblical picture of what a gospel-centered church is. So it is with that heart that we begin this morning. Let's, let's read our passage in Matthew chapter 18. I, I probably should have uh, told you a moment ago to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 18, but, uh, but here we are, Matthew 18. If you are new with us here and perhaps you've come and, and, and you do not have a copy of, of God's Word of your own, that's fine. We'll have uh, the words on the screen. We invite you to join on uh, by looking there. Matthew chapter 18, we'll begin in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he listens to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So we see here first this plan, this plan for how we deal with conflict and how we deal with the reality of imperfection, of brokenness that we all know. This brokenness that is that is who we are outside of Christ when we are by ourselves. First of all, we see here in verse 15, the heart and the purpose. Why are we doing this? This is incredibly uncomfortable. This is incredibly awkward to have conversations with other people about their sin. So it would make sense that we had better be pretty convinced on why we should do this. What kind of heart 
should we have when we confront someone else about the brokenness that is manifesting itself in their life? And I would say first, uh, that the heart behind discipline is to keep knowledge of sin in as small a group as possible for as long as possible. Look what he says here. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. This is kind of counterintuitive to us because our givenness, our nature, is to go talk to everybody who is not involved in the situation. And before we even deal with the root issue, we're just telling other people who are not involved. And we, the irony is that we are sinning in doing that. So our brother sins against us. And then our response is to turn around and go sin by gossiping about the situation to other people. How does that solve anything? And of course we understand it doesn't. But we see that the heart and purpose is to keep knowledge of sin in as small a group as possible for as long as, pros- uh, for as, long as possible. Proverbs 17, 9 bears witness to this. It says this, Whoever covers an offense seeks love. Whoever covers over an offense seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. There's this reality that many times... God calls you to, to cover over the offense of someone who has wronged you. In other words, someone does something, you have to evaluate, is this something that I need to confront right now? Or can I just, in humility and in love, just cover over it? If the thing repeats, if, if the, uh, the offense keeps being repeated against you, then perhaps there comes a point when, in wisdom, you must confront someone but, uh, but, but while you still have dirt available to cover over someone else's sin, it's good for unity and it's good for your own humility. See, prideful people have a, a big problem with this. Prideful people can't just let stuff go sometimes. And you know why? It's because they think, prideful people think, that sinning against them, that wronging them, well, that's the capital offense of the universe. And oh, we can't, we can't let that one die. Do you understand what happens? Prideful people can't just cover over sins in love many times. They have a hard time with that because they think that they themselves are God and should not be sinned against. When in reality, you have done more today against God in your own heart without anyone else knowing than anyone has ever done against you in your entire life. Why? Because God is perfect. And he is the only one who does not deserve for anything bad to happen to him. Or or perhaps that's not a, a good way to put it. But the reality is that our God is perfect. And any sin against him is more heinous than any sin could ever be committed against you. And if we understand this and we can grow in humility and we can forgive others... Whoever covers over a sin seeks love. The heart of confrontation and correction is love. It doesn't gossip about sin, but it addresses it to a small group as possible for the purpose of bringing about repentance. Look what it says in verse 15. Do this. Tell tell your fault to your brother between you and him alone. Why? If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The purpose here is to gain back someone who is not in right relationship with you and who, therefore, is not in right relationship with God. If you have friction between you and another person, then we can just go ahead and take it to the bank that that friction exists also between you and God or the other person and God. And and most of the times, between both of you and God. 
So we understand that, that the purpose is to bring about repentance and reconciliation. This reconciliation only happens because of the gospel, because our God is a God of reconciliation. And he has, second, or, or the Corinthians says, he has made us ministers of reconciliation. This is counterintuitive. This is countercultural. This is not the way we think. Because we think to ourselves, well, if I go confront so-and-so, I might lose him as a friend. The reality is the gospel says, the Bible says, the only way to gain so-and-so as a friend and as a brother is to confront him or her. That's counterintuitive. But we must do it. So let's talk practically. Let's just let's have a, a little sidebar discussion for a moment about why this is so difficult. Why is talking to other people about their sin so difficult? And I would say that, that we could all agree on the reason for this. And the reason for this is because we know that we ourselves are not perfect. So I, I want to make something abundantly clear, particularly for those of you who might be here with us for the first time, that we are a church who sings songs, as I said earlier, like, no list of sins I have not done. And I want to declare to you something that I, I, I believe to be a biblical principle, and that is that I think that the worst sinner in this room is standing before you now preaching. Paul said, I am the chief of all sinners. And I would suggest to you that we would understand the gospel, we would understand God's forgiveness toward us only when we truly come to believe in our hearts, I am the worst sinner that I know. If we would all grasp that, and if I could grasp that daily, not covering over things, but being upfront and honest about the reality of the brokenness and the depravity of my own heart, then we can experience God's grace daily poured out on our lives. So why is this difficult to have this conversation? Because of the assumption that comes along with it. If you confront someone about their sin, then the assumption is they're going to think that you think that you're better than them. They're going to think that you think that you're perfect, that you've got everything all together. You've got it all ironed out. And who are you to come to me and to tell me about sin in my life? Our culture doesn't even use that word anymore, sin. And here's where we have to make a decision. When we go to someone and we, in love, confront them about maybe some things that we see in their life and, and they just they bow up their chest and they say who are you you're not perfect either well, you know I've kind of watched you and I've seen some things in your life too and, and, and you have no reason to, to talk and, and we have a decision at that moment of how to respond and I would suggest that we should respond by saying something like this you know you're right no list of sins I have not done I have no goodness in me. And you know what? I do sin and I do fall short. And to be honest with you, I do so particularly in these three ways. Boom, boom, boom. But that doesn't negate the fact that, brother, I love you. Sister, I love you. And I want what God has for you to be manifest in your life. And I don't want you to continue doing the things that the Bible says will kill you and will harm you. And I want you to be able to continue to show the world who God is by how you live your life. If we respond in humility, I think we'll be well received. 
And of course, many, uh, many do not like this philosophy because of the one passage in the Bible that every atheist on the face of the stinking planet knows. And, it, and it's in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, of course, uh, is longer than, than one verse, but many uh, people who, who are not Christians know only one verse. Actually, just the first two words of Matthew 7, verse 1, judge not. Perhaps they know the first sentence, judge not that you be not judged. See, it sounds very arrogant to confront other people about their sins because it seems like we're judging people. But let's understand that the heart of the scriptures, the scriptures do not condemn, they they do not prohibit, they do not say don't do judging so much as they say don't be judgmental. And there's a difference there. In other words, let, let me explain this to you. We should make value judgments. We should be able to say certain things are good and certain things are bad. In other words, a friend I had in college, a friend I had in college struggled desperately in his past with an addiction to heroin. And he did not get better by people telling him that what he was doing was okay. People did not get better by uh, acting around him in a way that suggested that the, that the lifestyle he was leading would not kill him. He sought freedom in the gospel when people uh, confronted him and were able to come along and give him help and say, Brother, what you're doing will kill you. And in the same way, we should not be judgmental and have this critical spirit in our heart all the time, but we should be able to say, These things are good and these things are bad. This is what the scriptures say when they, when, when they talk about approving what is excellent. Approving what is good. You can't approve what is good without also saying there are certain things in our world that are bad. Notice what um, Matthew 7 says. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged. And with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. In other words, why would you ever say, hey, you know, you've got problems in your life without ever examining yourself. And that is the heart that we should have. We should have a heart of self-examination because self-examination leads to repentance. And when we we repent, what does Matthew 7 say that we're able to do? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, we should not go around pointing out faults just willy-nilly, but what we should do is examine our hearts Confess our own sins, remove the log from our eye so that we will be able. There's a purpose behind this. And that purpose is so that we will be able to notice sin in the life of another brother or sister and to help them. Because our charge as church members is to love one another, to bear one another's burdens, to hold one another accountable, and to confess sins to one another and so be healed. So there's a purpose behind Matthew chapter 7. That purpose is for self-examination and to help others. To help others. So let's understand. Christians should have critical minds. But they should not have critical hearts. Let me explain what I mean. Christians, we should have the ability to think critically, to process through things and to reason through things and to think biblically. Okay, so we should be able to think in a critical way, but we should not have critical hearts. 
critical spirits. We should not be fault finders, all the time going around and looking for imperfections in others. And how cowardly is that? Because everyone has imperfections. It doesn't take a genius to point out faults. It takes someone who knows God to lovingly point out faults and to come alongside a brother and to say, let's do this thing together. So here's what to do next, verse 16. Verse 16, if I can make my way back to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verse 16 says the next step. The next step is this. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. You know, I think the reason that Jesus, I, I, don't, I don't presume to have any great insight into the wisdom of God, but I do think that Jesus was very practical. He was a very practical teacher. And he said, sometimes you might need to take another brother or sister along who are wise and who can keep, you know, keep knowledge of the sin without gossiping about it. And you take this other brother and sister along to confront the person who is caught in sin. Because after all, isn't it harder to bald face lie to three people? who are all coming to you saying, hey, I see the same thing, than it is, you can deceive one person, right? You can deceive one person. You can, you can pull the wool over one person's eyes. It's much harder to do that with three people. And when these three people come in love, there's a possibility, a great possibility, that they will be well received. Verse 16. So verse 17 goes on and kind of tells us what the last resort is. This is what we hope we don't get to. And this is very, probably, I would suggest, the most politically incorrect passage of, of, uh, of this uh, verse of this passage that we are considering today. It says this, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And we've got we've to parse out a few things here. First of all, we see what we hopefully have been emphasizing um, over the last five and six weeks, that the church has a role in your becoming like Jesus. We have talked about how the church has, has been downplayed. There are two extremes. Some people over here saying that, that community actually getting together and talking about Jesus somehow trumps the Bible. And on this other extreme, there are people who say, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. You know, what is the church? I just want to have a personal relationship with Jesus with, with no consideration for a corporate relationship with Jesus. What does, it means to, what does it mean to be the church? And so we understand these temptations and we've talked about them. We don't want to, uh, to veer off into that discussion again, even though it is worthwhile. But we see that the church has a role in calling for the repentance of its members. Why is this? And of course, it's because we understand that the gospel, if we understand the gospel, we understand that the church has authority over us. Why? Because the church, as we have established, of course, the past five or six weeks, is God's means for our becoming like Jesus. The church should have authority over you. And I would suggest that if the church has no authority over you, and the church is what is supposed to represent God on earth, if the church has no authority over you, then perhaps God has no authority over you. Do you see what I'm getting at? I hope so. Let me read verses 18 and 19 to you. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
If two of you agree about anything I ask, it will be done for my Father in heaven. I don't know the full meaning of what all this means, but what I do know is that in the context of this passage, it means that what we do in here has some kind of mysterious reality connected to what goes on in heaven, what goes on in the kingdom of God. That is why we must be passionate about purity in our church because if our church is not pure, then it is as if we are telegraphing to the rest of the world that the kingdom of God one day will not be pure. And we can't do that. We absolutely can't do that. But here's the danger. Here's the danger in, in, in church and in church having authority over you. And it is, that, it is that it is absolutely against the thinking of our age. The cultural pot that we have been boiled in suggests that who are you to tell me the church doesn't have authority over me? You see, churches in our culture, and particularly I would suggest in our region of the world, churches are seen as such a, uh, a preference that I go to church because it tells me what I like to hear. Or, or you know, we, we treat church in such a, a way that is probably only acceptable for how we should choose car dealerships. This church over here, they say that they're going to give me 0%, you know, for 24 months. But this church over here says they'll, they'll, they'll to throw in the towing package. But this church down here says they'll do free maintenance, you know, until I get to so many thousand miles. And, and you know, I've just got to pick which one I like better. And you know what? If there's a church that tells me uh, what I don't want to hear, then that's okay. I'll just go to one of the 17 other uh, churches in the, in the next two square mile radius who won't hold the bar high and will let me go to hell loving what will send me there. And it is not loving. And it is not loving. This nobody can tell me what to do attitude, while it may be very American and very individualistic, this no, who are you to tell me nobody can have authority over me, it is starkly and deeply unchristian. It comes from a heart that does not say, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Rather, it comes from a heart that says, I am good enough on my own and I, by myself, am perfectly capable of being my own boss and doing with my life whatever it is that I please. But it hurts, doesn't it, when you go to a brother? When you go to a sister and you say, brother, sister, I see this pattern in your life and, and I really just want to have a conversation between you and I. And they say, no, I don't see that. I don't have a problem. It's not me. You know? And you say, well, I really, I really think that you should consider that. I think you should pray about it. I think you should repent because I think the way that you're acting, the way you're treating your wife, the way you're, you're neglecting your family, the way that you're not leading your family... Uh, is, is, is really kind of concerning. And because I love you, I want you to, to repent and to call it what it is and to call it sin. And, uh, and he says no, or she says no. And then you bring along two or, two or three brothers or two or three believers and, and, and they, they still bow up their chest to you. And then maybe uh, after that, you, you bring it before the church. And I don't think that looks like, you know, uh, drawing and quartering someone in, in front of the business meeting, but maybe before the, the elders of the church. Um, and, and talking about the issues and, and what we've done to try to bring about reconciliation and still they won't and then the church calls them to repentance and they still don't. And so the church says, we want you to be here. 
We want you to come. We want you to hear what we have to say, but we cannot allow you to be part of the body of Christ here at our church. We cannot allow you to be part of the membership because that would lead you to think that you are right with God when the church says you need to repent. And as politically incorrect and as difficult as that is, the Bible says that it serves sometimes to call people back when they say, whoa, you know what, maybe I really need to do some evaluation. This church, they're really serious about this. And they come back. You see, pruning a tree, while you can prune off dead branches and it serves for the health of the tree, the Bible says that when you prune members from your, from your church who are not walking with Jesus, it not only makes the church healthy, it not only makes the tree healthy, it might actually serve to bring the branch you cut off back to life. That only happens in the economy of God. That he could discipline someone and, and through that discipline call them back to himself. And how beautiful of a picture is that. So I hope you see the heart that we do this with. So this first half has been outlining what church discipline is. Now, if I haven't, I want to endeavor to, to build a case, build the best case that I can um, about why we should do church discipline. It's one thing to understand what it is. It's another to be passionate about why we should do it. First of all, I want to give you um, uh, three points here. The first point is that we do church discipline because we love one another. And we've talked about how strange it is, how strange it is that, uh, that many people would react negatively to the church, you know, trying to call them to repentance. But it's interesting that, let's say you're on a plane and then there's these police, these airport police rush into the cockpit with the TSA. You know, the TSA officers rush into the cockpit. And at the last minute before takeoff, they arrest a, a, an imposter pilot. They arrest a, a fake pilot. The entire group of passengers on that plane would, would, would applaud that and, w- and would cry for joy because... Uh, because the TSA and the, and the airport police have not only saved the pilot, but they've saved everyone else on board from some kind of catastrophe. But oh, when, you, when the church confronts someone about their sins, oh, you can't do that. Who do you think you are? I'll go to another church down the road. Strange how we consider these things. It's strange, but we do church discipline because we love one another. I would suggest that the context I had a professor in college who, from, the, from my freshman year until my senior year, we all heard this same phrase over and over again. Context, context, context. Context is king, he said. Verses 18, uh, sorry, chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. You see, just before this passage that we've been considering about church discipline was a passage Uh, about it was a parable the parable of the lost sheep look what it says see that you do not despise one of these little ones for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one who went astray and when he finds it truly I say to you he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray so it is not of my will, the Father in heaven, 
Father who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. It is not his will that they should perish. So we understand that loving someone often involves going after them. Our reaction is to think, hey, I still got 99. You know, that one sheep, I mean, it's always been that way. She's always been that way. She's always done those sins. He's always done that. He's always kind of treated his wife that way. He's always kind of been lax about leading his family. You know, they've always done these things. Why don't you just let them wander? We've still got 99. And it's not loving. It's not loving, is it? It's not loving to allow that sheep to, to drop off the side of a cliff or to go days without water and die. It's not loving. We do church discipline for the repentance of the wayward brother or sister. Many times this involves doing hard things. Secondly, second reason, we've talked about this uh, somewhat during other weeks, we do church discipline. We have these hard conversations. We open ourselves up to discussion about our own sin. Why? In order to show the world what God is like. You understand that our membership here, and when I say membership, I don't mean like that we're a member of some kind of country club and, and we, we just enjoy finding reasons to blackball people out of our better than you club here at Abner Creek. The reality is, when I say membership, I mean body parts. We are body parts of the body of Christ. And whom we allow to join that body says something to the world about what our God is like. So we protect the membership. We do everything we can to stay pure because we want to show the world what God is like. This is perhaps our greatest charge. This is perhaps our greatest charge to protect what the gospel looks like. I would suggest to you, it may seem counterintuitive. It may seem counterintuitive to you. How are you ever going to grow a church if you keep, you know, telling people hard things and and sometimes asking them to repent? How are you ever going to grow? How are you ever going to grow if you even from time to time have to ask a person to be removed from the membership? How are you ever going to grow? I would suggest to you that that way of thinking is actually wrong. And here's why. How many young people have left the local church not because they've been asked to repent, but because they've grown up seeing people who call themselves Christians act in an ungodly way? And it's killing the churches in America. I would suggest to you that if you want to grow a church, you grow a pure church. And people won't become disillusioned because because we're allowing all these people to walk around and call themselves believers, but at the same time, they are living in an unrepentant way, not calling their sin, sin. I'll tell you a story. It's a church that I know about back close to home, um, and they had been doing some ministry in their community. And what had been happening was that this young group of kids at at a local house there had been coming to their vacation Bible school and and I think a couple of church members had been picking them up and bringing them and just really loving on them a couple of their neighbors there was just one issue and that issue was that these kids had two moms and uh, one morning uh, kind of unsuspected I think these this, this lesbian couple walked into the church sat through the service and at the end they came up to the front and presented themselves for membership into the church imagine the, the, the kind of situation 
they were placed in. And that church at that moment had a decision to make. And I just want to say to you, just, just to clarify what I'm trying to talk about, if you are here this morning and you struggle with same-sex attraction, God does not hate you because of that. Okay? If you are here for that purpose, or if you are here and that is a reality that is going on in your heart, let me say to you that this, we, we desire for this to be for you a safe place. Okay, we do not want to, to, to cast you out or anything. We want you to come and we want you to be here and we want you to hear the things that we are having to say and, and what God says about our lives. And it's possible for you, by the way, that if you recognize the brokenness that is in your heart and that these attractions or these things, these desires are not good, it is possible for you to live the rest of your life as a believer having desires that are not good but on which you do not act and you do not run toward that kind of lifestyle. And here's why I know that. I know that because I have desires in my heart that are not good for me and I'm a believer. And we all, because of the brokenness, you understand what we see in Scripture, there is no such thing as a straight person because we are all broken. We have sexual brokenness. We have relational brokenness. We have um, a brokenness in our, the way that we deal with our finances, between our desires and everything else. So what I am saying to you is that just because you feel it does not mean you should give yourself to it. And no matter what your desires are, no matter what your, your givennesses are, no matter what your proclivities are, if you will come to Christ, declare, profess him as Lord, ask him to take away your sins and to make you new and that you will run away from sin and you will call sin what the Bible calls sin and, and, um, and you will walk with Jesus based on your faith. And your faith alone, Jesus will say, come, find your identity in me. And that message is the message that we teach this morning. While our God is a God who who extends grace, he does so even in discipline, in the discipline of the church. Because Jesus always causes change in the hearts of believers, we cannot allow people to live and just to go headlong toward what will kill them, allowing them to think that they're okay. And I would not like for you to do that for me either. Thirdly, or, um, yeah, thirdly, and lastly, we do church discipline to keep from sinning. We do church discipline to keep from sinning. Here's the irony. The irony is that church, doing church discipline, having these hard conversations and sometimes even doing the formal steps that it, that it talks about there in Matthew 18, is a command. It's not a suggestion. So when we fail to do it, when we try to sweep everything under the rug and, and oh, I don't want to have those conversations with him and he's not going to receive that well or she's not, she's not really going to go for that, when we fail to do that, we sin. And the irony is that when we fail to confront others about sin, we ourselves sin and make ourselves subject to the discipline of God. When we fail to do church discipline, we become subject to God's discipline. 
So we do church discipline. We have these hard conversations because we believe who, that God is who he says he is. And we fear his discipline more than what any man can do to us. Because he is good and desires our good. We do church discipline because we want to show the world what God is like. In Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, uh, if I could backtrack for just a moment, Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 says that God disciplines. Re- re- listen to these words as I just read them. I, I don't think that perhaps you should turn there. This is going to be very brief. If you ha- ha- and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And get this, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The reality that that the author of Hebrews wants to communicate to us is that if there is no discipline in your life from the Holy Spirit or from the church, that it could be that you are not a true, legitimate son of God. That is why we do church discipline, because our God is a God who disciplines and we want to be like him. If you have no conviction in your heart, if you, if you have no discipline from the Lord that comes from the Holy Spirit or that comes through His grace from the church, it could be that you do not know Him. So we want you to experience that kind of discipline. And more than that, we want you to respond to it well and in repentance so that you can have a reconciled relationship with God. Do you see the love? Do you see the love there? I hope that you do. It is not the the love that our culture is given to notice, but it is the love that is manifest in our God. And and kind of going back to, to the point that I was on before I backtrack. Number three, we do church discipline to keep from sinning. The irony is that if our church does not practice church discipline, it sins and becomes subject to the very discipline of God. So as I, as I finish up, I don't, you know, I'm always hesitant to just, you know, tack on the gospel at the end. That's not what I'm attempting to do here. But it is important for us to see the connectedness to the gospel. How does church discipline connect to the gospel? I would suggest to you that it is deeply and foundationally connected to the gospel. Just the God, the, the the flagship verse for the gospel and for the church's commission is the, the great commission. We see in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And doing what? How are we to do this? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The reality is we may think that we're fulfilling the great commission if we're, if we're having our fall festival and if we're sending missionaries, if we're sending a group to Peru and to Toronto and to Kentucky and to, and to you know, wherever the case may be. We may think that we're fulfilling the great commission if we're given to the cooperative program, which by the way is a great thing. But we will never be truly as a church fulfilling the great commission if we are not doing the hard things that are necessary to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And doing that means that sometimes we're going to have to have hard conversations. But we do it for the purpose of the gospel. We do it because we believe in the great commission. And we believe that the great commission is advanced primarily when the church is pure. And it is against the church of Jesus Christ 
only against the church of Jesus Christ that the gates of hell will not prevail. We may be, folks, one day, if we can stay pure, it may be that we have to meet back across the road in the log cabin. But praise God that even in that day when there may be only 12 believers here who call themselves the church at Abner Creek, that they are still pure and against that church, the gates of hell will never prevail. It cannot happen. And we believe that. And because of that, we believe that purity is important. Secondly, I, I would suggest that this is connected to the gospel because it is only those who recognize their sin who may come to Christ. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners because it is only those who are sick who recognize their need for a physician. And of course, I'm paraphrasing there. But only if you recognize that you are sick will you call out to God. And that is one of the great purposes of the church. The great purposes of the church is a diagnostic purpose. We diagnose one another in love so that we may return daily to the great physician to seek treatment. That is why we do this. So, for those of you who are with us for the first time, welcome to Abner Creek Baptist Church, where we have a Sunday where we talk about, you know, why we like to kick people, uh, why we like to kick people out. <laughs> no, but in all joking aside, I hope you understand, perhaps even if you are here with us for the first time, and then these last six weeks have seemed kind of strange because, you know, we're just trying to have this in-house discussion about how we might have a pure church and a good church. We hope that you see that we consider what we are doing here to be very important. And we understand that we are sinners and that we need one another. And we invite you to become a part of this. And we invite you to find your identity here, but ultimately to find your identity in Jesus Christ. If you have questions about the things that we have talked about this morning, if you have questions about the songs that we have sung, if you have questions about the faith in general, myself, Ethan, Pastor Scott, we would love to make ourselves available to you throughout the week. We could go have lunch. We could go uh, talk about uh, your, your questions, your concerns, uh, the things that you were curious about our church perhaps, and we would love to minister to you in that way. But for the rest of us, let us consider how we might be a pure church. Let us consider if you were here this morning and you recognize that yes, God sets the standard high and I can't reach that standard because God's standard is perfection, then you are among good people. Uh, you are among friends, I should say rather. You're among friends who recognize that we can't meet God's standard either, and we need a stand-in. We need the one perfect person, Jesus Christ, to come to earth, live the perfect life that we could not live, die the death that we deserved in order to pay and to wash away our sins, and that if you place your faith in him and if you trust in him, he will give you new life and purpose even now. I want to make that available to you. Let us pray. Lord, as I finish this sermon and as it goes out even to the podcast, Father, we, we ask your blessing on your word and we, we have faith that your word never returns void. It always accomplishes your purposes. So God, I pray this morning that you would, by your Holy Spirit and by your grace, continue to conform your church here at Abner Creek into the likeness of a biblical, God-centered church. I pray for the individuals here. 
Lord, I think that I can confidently pray for everyone who calls himself a member of Abner Creek that you would help them stay far away from sin because I understand that we are all broken. We all struggle with sin. Lord, make us who we need to be. I pray that we would be sensitive to your spirit and that we would not waste our time here, the time that you have given us to be in this community and to impact the world for the name of Jesus Christ. We beg these things because you are good and because you have purchased a way in the name of Christ. Amen. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.